And make sure you guys are close to your mics because there's like, like you, I could hear you guys like all echoey. Mm. Okay. But if you're not close, you, you, you should probably feel the thing on your face a little bit. Feel it's the thing literally touching my mouth. Literally touching gross. my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. It feels. Yeah. You should smell <laughs> the breath of the person who preceded you. <laughs> Disgusting. If you can smell that, you're in the right place. Mm, this must have been Vince. <laughs> yeah. It's an intimate thing. <laughs> I feel That's connected. Why a lot of, to all some people, podcasts. when they use stuff like this, everybody has their own. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like Sarah always pulls hers off whenever anybody's yeah. doing a scripture reading using her mic. <laughs> Does she always have the same number of mic? Like the same mic? I don't know if she always has the same number, but she always puts on her own personal oh. little foam thing. I respect that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 89th episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource that's designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. This week, you're going to hear from myself, Jill Reese, and lead pastor Nick Gibson as we talk about the jealousy of God. This is based on a uh, recent sermon that Nick preached where he was talking about the jealousy of God. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more and what it means for us that God is a jealous God. So take a listen. Hey guys, uh, this is Nick Gibson. Can you say hello? Hey. This is Jill Reese. Hello, this is me. And John Sekatowski. Yes, I'm here. We're all here. And uh, this is the Engage and Equip podcast, which is a resource designed to make substantive disciples for the local church. And we are going to be talking this morning about the jealousy of God, which was the sermon from this past Sunday, which was January 20th. 2019. And it's a difficult topic. There's, I think a lot of people have negative connotations of the word jealousy and the feeling of jealousy. Mm -hmm. And so therefore we can have negative connotations of God when we hear about his jealousy. So we're going to unpack that. Yeah, Jill, let me just say for anybody who's not listening to our sermons kind of abreast, Mm -hmm. um, this is the third in an installation of four sermons on the love of God. And it's meant Mm -hmm. to be third. So if uh, if you listen to this podcast and you want to listen to the to the sermon, I'd encourage you to go back to the first of the three sermons and listen your way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. So we had some questions pop up as a result of the sermon and also throughout the preparations for the sermon. Uh, Nick and I mm-hmm. did some research, a lot of research for it, and uh, we're Sometimes I was confused <laughs> by yeah, what's going on. You guys were running on six whiteboards, yep. right? Five, yeah. six whiteboards? Yeah, that's the most Five, whiteboards we've but, had for a sermon. Mm-hmm. But one whiteboard was double wide, yeah. so basically six. So it counts as six. Yeah, counts as six. Yeah, so there was just a lot to wrestle with. Um, yeah, I think starting out, um, some of the things that can be difficult in terms of why we perceive jealousy as negative is either because in our in our culture we uh, assume it's a cultural assumption that we ca- should be able to do whatever we want, and so Nick talked a lot in the sermon about how jealousy is a result of a covenant and um, a relationship of loyalty, and that's very that's the antithesis of our <laughs> cultural <laughs> narrative right now. Mm. Yeah, um, so let, let me let's just clarify this for mm-hmm. people who might be listening and didn't hear the sermon. Mm-hmm. So what I said was jealousy is the protective response mm-hmm. to right, honor, and loyalty mm-hmm. in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And that um, relationships, one of the reasons we have formalized relationships mm-hmm. like covenants is because 
how we feel loyal to each other or how we sense that another person deserves being treated with honor is an incredibly subjective thing Mm -hmm. that we feel incredibly deeply. Mm -hmm. And so one of the only ways to take it and it is the Bible treats it as an objective truth Mm -hmm. that loyalty is something that there should be honor is something that should be given on the basis of objective dignity of relationships. Mm -hmm. That is loyalty and the objective dignity of persons that is honor. Mm -hmm. And so if that's true, and yet we perceive the amount of it relatively, mm-hmm. right? Covenants or formal agreements of honor and loyalty, any formalizations are necessary. That's why even if you wipe out like the 19, since the 1960s, almost all sexually based covenantal relationships have been just entirely wiped out. Okay, mm-hmm. so 40% of mm-hmm. younger adult women in New York City have admitted to spouse poaching. So even marriage mm-hmm. is not really considered that. Mm-hmm. And yet even among like younger people, they still want a concept of girlfriend, boyfriend. They still want Mm -hmm. a DTR. They still want at colleges. They still want people to give verbal consent Mm -hmm. for -hmm. sexual events Mm -hmm. because some formalization is absolutely necessary Mm -hmm. in human experience and existence. Otherwise everybody is angry and mad and hurt all the time Mm -hmm. and they can't let go of it because they know it's real Mm because it is. And yet there's all this implicit disagreement between us. So God doesn't want that. And so he creates covenants. Mm -hmm. He says, this is what the relationship is going to be like. This is the honor and loyalty you're going to give me. This is the honor and loyalty I'm going to give you. This is the, this is how our relationship is going to work and function. And he's incredibly explicit. And so sometimes we get like really upset about all these laws God gives us or whatever, all Mm -hmm. this direction. Mm -hmm. But like, that's what's necessary for any relationship not to run afoul and shipwreck Mm -hmm. on the true inner dictates of loyalty and honor, which is what makes up our relationships. Mm -hmm. People want to talk about like, well, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. Mm -hmm. It's all about relationships and our relationships with God. Fine. But what that means is you've now entered into the realm of loyalty and honor Mm -hmm. and loyalty Mm -hmm. and honor must be regulated. Mm-hmm. And so even if you wanted to quote all be about love, you are demanding laws and regulations and clarifications and mm-hmm. agreements because mm-hmm. love has always been regulated that way among beings. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so therefore the protection or the protective response to that covenantal loyalty, the right honor loyalty mm-hmm. is jealousy. Mm-hmm. Right. And therefore jealousy is appropriate whenever a protective response is appropriate. That mm-hmm. is whenever right loyalty and honor is challenged or attacked mm-hmm. or subverted mm-hmm. or misvalued. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? And yeah. if you see yeah. it that way, then you can see that loyalty, that jealousy is something that must be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The question is when, how much do you have the right to do it and mm-hmm. act upon it? Who does, who doesn't all of that mm-hmm. yeah. become. And so le- life is a lot more complicated than don't be jealous. And how, t- and how to feel it rightly and how to build up the, the situation where you would feel jealousy rightly. So like, how do you build up the kind of relationship where you would rightfully feel jealous? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, Cause I think when we were wrestling through the sermon preparations, I was realizing how much of the culture I have absorbed. And I, I've realized, I don't even know if I feel that deeply <laughs> about anything where I would right. feel how, well, I could mm. never feel how God would feel, but mm the jealousy that he has and the depth of the love that that requires mm-hmm. was shocking to me. And I don't, I'm yeah. one question I'm considering is how do I build that kind of love mm-hmm. right. for God and for other people? Yeah. 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 It's interesting that you say that because this morning I was reading in second Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about his jealousy for the Corinthian church. And that was the same mm-hmm. takeaway I had yeah. where I was like, man, are there, are there people in my life who I have this kind of 
zealous mm-hmm. jealousy for mm-hmm. where like Paul is willing to humiliate himself for the sake mm-hmm. of their faith. He's willing to um, like, he's willing to do things that will put that will cost him something for the mm-hmm. sake of their faith and the purity of their church and um, that they wouldn't stray from the message of the gospel. Um, so yeah, that was a question that I was left with too. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things, one of the difficulties people have with the concept of jealousy is we tend to conflate the resp- internal response of, mm-hmm. a, of a protective response of jealousy mm-hmm. with how people act out jealousy that is by means of wrath or con- being controlling or being vindictive or mm-hmm. seeking revenge mm-hmm. and so on. And so in the Bible, those are completely separated because one of the things that one of the things that causes me to, for example, apologize to my kids when I've been a terrible parent. Mm-hmm. is my jealousy for their development in their heart and, and mm-hmm. uh, the protective feeling I have over our relationship because I don't want to apologize. Mm-hmm. I don't want to admit I'm wrong. Yes. I don't want to humiliate myself. Yeah. I want to withhold the integrity of the honor I want to give myself, but it's my jealousy for my relationship with my, with my daughters. You know, it's usually mm-hmm. my older kids. I end up apologizing to um, that, that drives me to humiliate myself and say I was wrong I did this wrong. I should have treated you this way. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Please forgive me. Um, that comes from my feeling of jealousy over that relationship, my protective response to the honor and loyalty that they owe me and I owe them in this parental mm-hmm. relationship, which I've given them 15 and 14 years of my life. And they've mm-hmm. been my child, right? That's different than if I, out of a sense of jealousy, strike out in a anger or wrath or something that that is not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And then people go, oh, that's jealousy. It's actually not jealousy. I chose to, in the in the experience of jealousy, I chose to respond in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And what God wants us to do is to say, when that protective response rises and you know it's an appropriate response, you then have a decision to make. Mm-hmm. Based on that motivation, that protective yeah, that desire, then what are you going to do to protect the relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right or to seek the reinstitution of the honor and loyalty necessary, and that's a that is an independent choice mm-hmm. from the direct choice of or the direct response of jealousy. And and when you don't split those up, the the guy that beats up his girlfriend because she talked to some guy at the bar, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you think that's jealousy, and it's not. That guy mm-hmm. felt jealous, and instead of telling her how he felt. Mm-hmm. Or instead of treating her nicer than that guy or something like that, mm-hmm. he decided to smack her around, right? And it's it's that wrath misdirected at her, which mm-hmm. is wrong. It's not the feeling of jealousy necessarily, mm-hmm. right? And so if you can split those two up, you can say, okay, Paul can be jealous for the church. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he writes them a letter, mm-hmm. encouraging them and rebuking them and strengthening them and all that. What we do with jealousy isn't the mm-hmm. same thing as jealousy being the proper protective response yeah mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah that makes yeah. sense and i think for a lot of modern people they don't make that distinction and they don't understand the basic natural reason why jealousy must exist because of the basis of human relationships mm-hmm. one of the things i find and this isn't just true with millennials or gen z people i mean this is true up and into the boomers mm-hmm. is some of the most fundamental ideas about life i have to rediscover and then tell people about mm-hmm. that like in a relationship there's going to be a natural feeling of loyalty and honor that will be naturally created because of how human, human beings are mm-hmm. that that's, you can't get, you can't get rid of that by saying that shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Like you may have experienced this, like you got just introduced to somebody else at a party, right? You're just going on. You get introduced to somebody. They now know you quote that mm-hmm. your acquaintances mm-hmm. 
and you can feel your relationship that your person has just changed. There is honor and loyalty that you owe them. It's very little, but it's different than before you met them. Mm-hmm. Like it's now your job to acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you see them publicly, it's not. And if you don't acknowledge them, mm-hmm. you've slighted them, mm-hmm. which is an offense to loyalty and honor. Right. If if with friends, like if you don't call a friend mm-hmm. for a while and it feels to them like you're pulling away, they feel hurt by that. They feel offended mm-hmm. by that. And it's partly because of a sense of loss of security or something, but it's rooted in feelings of loyalty and honor. Wait, Mm. I thought we were committed to each other. Mm. I thought you were my friend and I was your friend and that you were going to be there for me and I was going to be there for you and I was going to treat you like a friend with honor and you were going to be there when I needed you. Loyalty. And therefore, if you asked me to be there for you, I would be there for you. That's Mm -hmm. loyalty, right? Mm -hmm. And you've offended that by not calling me and not talking to me and whatever. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? And so once you get these categories in place... A lot of things mm-hmm. make sense mm-hmm. yeah. that otherwise just would annoy you or wouldn't make sense or that you would wish wasn't part of the bother of living, mm-hmm. but that are fundamental to all human relationships, religious or not. Yeah. Jesus just makes us make, helps us make sense of them, order them and understand them rightly between us and God mm-hmm. and therefore them us and each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I was, as I was listening to you talk, Nick, I was thinking through, I wonder if, there was a point where we forgot what rightful jealousy was or got worse at enacting rightful jealousy. But then I was remembering how even back to numbers five that you talked about in the sermon, God Mm -hmm. removed uh, the right to judge if the jealousy was correct from the humans um, in that um, curse uh, trial for women who were accused of adultery and we don't know if it was if they actually committed adultery. So I was just thinking about how humans have always been bad <laughs> at <laughs> at jealousy <laughs> as you were talking mm-hmm. because it it does in one sense seem like in our culture we have removed loyalty um and commitment. We think we have even mm-hmm. though that's fundamental to any sort of relationship. And so I I was wondering if it was worse if we were worse at jealousy because of that. But I think humans in general yeah what we did is we cut out an understanding of honor and jealousy from our self-understanding yeah when Mm -hmm. we wanted to go into a period of disestablishment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to make all relationships free and fundamentally volitional Mm -hmm. it it sounds like a good idea to say all human relationships at all moments should be completely voluntary and Mm -hmm. completely um subjected to momentary consent in real time Okay. Yeah. That makes perfect. It sounds like that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And if you could do that, then anybody could have sex with anybody. Anybody could mm-hmm. work for anybody. Mm-hmm. Anybody could do any. And everybody's free to pursue happiness however they want to mm-hmm. in the moment, which sounds wonderful, right? <laughs> but it's it's utterly inhuman. Yeah. Like it actually denies the biological structures of the human mind and personality. Mm-hmm. And it if and it, it is also fundamentally unjust because nobody gives into a relationship equally all the time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you can always quit on somebody when they've put in a lot more than you, right? And yeah. so the the whole idea now that doesn't mean that there aren't continual actions in relationships that require consent. Mm-hmm. There obviously is sexually. There are in lots of different kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that like we're we're always like in this slice of time that has no relationship to all other slices of time mm-hmm. that have no track record and no future and no assumptions and that's all an inhuman way of looking at human mm-hmm. beings. And, the, and if you cut that out of people's knowledge, which it is in a lot of ways cut out of the knowledge of millennials mm-hmm. and so on, which is a which is a harm that was done to them, mm-hmm. right? Um, but they need to outgrow it. Like 
all all of the generations need to like sort of recapture some of these fundamental realities about mm-hmm. human beings. And it's I find it really tragic that a lot of these are being reintroduced by evolutionary psychologists. Mm-hmm. That evolutionary psychologists are studying the brain and how people behave, and they're saying, "Look, this is how people behave, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not." Right? It's and like people you are like, yeah. eat these things, yeah, yeah, and they're like, "Oh, you know these." And so these are the life hacks and mm-hmm. whatever. And it's like this is why you eat when you don't want to eat, and this is why you get mm-hmm. right. And then they they <laughs> and then they introduce basically like how you can overcome your motherboard circuiting programming mm-hmm. in a way to get back to not having to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um. And for me, that's a tragedy because what God intended was that we would, mm. uh, that the spiritual truths that he told us and the, f- and the wiring that we have biologically mm-hmm. are meant to fit perfectly with each other mm-hmm. if we would acknowledge them. And to the extent to which we don't, it creates these kinds of blind spots. And when you deny who you are, you tend to behave badly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who don't understand themselves tend to do stuff that is really silly and really harmful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to them and others mm-hmm. and what more and more widely even out in culture and then to their mm-hmm. children and mm-hmm. so on. It's, it's a very generational. Right. So yeah. So the, the people who don't understand that they need the kind of things that would produce jealousy in their lives, that they need things that are structurally covenantal, that they need relationships with other people that involve honor and involve, um, right interaction with one another that those things would then produce jealousy that if they don't recognize that they need those things they're going to do the exact kind of things that cause all sorts of problems with those things where those feelings manifest themselves and nobody has any Mm -hmm. idea why yeah i think yeah there's so so needing the needing the covenants is the second step the first step is to recognize that Mm -hmm. if there are any relationships there will be the dynamics of loyalty yeah. and honor. Mm-hmm. And when those are challenged, it will produce the natural result of jealousy. And that's all natural. And mm-hmm. it, you can't get rid of any of that. Mm-hmm. You can educate people to the doctoral level and they will still feel that way. Yeah. That's why you need those covenantal relationships. Mm-hmm. And if you try to get around them, it's going to create chaos. Sorry, yeah. Joe, go ahead. And well, and the chaos is that we all feel anxious and angry and don't have any idea why, even though it's because we've broken those first two things. We're still angry and jealous and anxious right. because we're, we don't even know we're angry and jealous right. <laughs> and we're probably sad because we've been hurt and there's right. there in many cases you're not allowed to say so yeah right, right. it feels like there's, there's nothing you can do about it right one of the rules is there is a conspiracy of silence like mm-hmm. there was a book uh, i read i've been reading recently by Stephen rhodes called taking sex differences seriously and there's this very long chapter on research about the modern sex culture among college students by women hmm. and basically all of the research says that women hate it. Hmm. They just absolutely hate the modern collegiate sex culture. Hmm. And they spend all this time trying to convince themselves that they like it, trying Hmm. to convince themselves that it's liberating. Hmm. They encourage each other to drink themselves into oblivion before Hmm. they even go to parties. Hmm. And so um, of what rape culture advocates, meaning that rape culture exists, advocates, Mm -hmm. right? The people who are all at the rape hotlines at schools and stuff, they're extremely broad definition of rapes. Two thirds of those two thirds of what they would call non-consensual sexual things that happen in college have to do with women that are essentially incapacitated by their own drinking. Hmm. Most of which Hmm. is actually encouraged by other female friends. Hmm. Right now. I don't believe, I I still believe that men should gallantly treat women drunk off their butts as treasures that should not be taken advantage of because Mm -hmm. they know what it means to be men. Mm Mm-hmm. But what's going on there is also that women don't know what it means to be a woman. They're not connected enough with their own sexuality or their own femininity to realize they don't want to go out 
to frat houses and bars and have mm-hmm. casual sex. Mm-hmm. They hate themselves in the morning. They have to drink themselves into oblivion because otherwise their hearts and their consciences would tell them that they're doing, they're violating themselves and they're doing what they don't really want. Mm-hmm. But they don't want to be humiliated in the culture of sexual promiscuity as some kind of prude, non-feminist, like woman who wants to be homeschooling their kids barefoot. <laughs> right. And so like they can't possibly do that. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened is there, and, and all of that is based on a bunch of ridiculously inhuman assumptions yeah. in a misunderstanding of masculinity, a misunderstanding of femininity, right. which comes from a misunderstanding of humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why nobody cares about these commitments mm-hmm. of loyalty and honor that should exist. Mm-hmm. But women realize over time that they desperately, desperately, desperately want them. Mm-hmm. And it, it's and women realize it first, not because they're weaker. They tend to be more sensitive and they realize it also because they're more vulnerable because their bodies produce new humans mm-hmm. that are incredibly vulnerable. And so they know that they could be ex- given an extreme responsibility through this relationship at any moment. Mm-hmm. So what they want is a stable relationship of loyalty right. and honor. Right, right. Some sort of structure with which to mm-hmm. introduce that new human. Yeah, and people are like, well, that's so anti-feminist and you think women mm-hmm. are so traditional. And like, no, I think women know what they are on mm-hmm. a very mm-hmm. deep level. Mm-hmm. They know they're women mm-hmm. and they want, they want, a, they and they know men are 70% more physically strong in their upper bodies. They don't want to be hit and beat up and they don't want to be raising children without a male helping them and they don't want to be treated like, mm-hmm. right? And so um, our culture's denial of those things mm-hmm has created a, a incredibly toxic culture and you're not allowed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're just not allowed to talk about it, mm-hmm. but it's never going to work. Right. Yeah. So out of that culture, so I've, I've read, I've met with women and read some of Hosea, which was mm-hmm. something you brought up in your sermon. Yeah. I've read some of Hosea and, um, there are parts where the wrath of God and the anger of God in jealousy come out, um, and are expressed towards the woman who keeps, who is running away, who represents Israel as an unfaithful nation to God. And the response I do, I, many people have is that that's so mean of God. How is Uh that a good God Mm. when his response is that? And so I think right now I'm going to read some of Hosea. Okay. If that's okay. And then I want to talk about, because we we fundamentally we we ultimately need to reframe our vision of jealous of God's jealousy to something that is good. So I'm going to read some passages out of Hosea, and then I want to talk about why this is good, okay, and how this is good. Great. Okay. So this is Isaiah or Hosea, excuse me, two, and uh, in Hosea, God has told the prophet Hosea to marry an adulterous woman who keeps running away from him and going after other lovers. So I'm going to start in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, halfway through verse 5. She said, who's the adulterous woman, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block, and God is saying, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they use for Baal, 
Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. Um... I'm going to skip down a few verses. And then uh, in verse verse 16, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. So he's basically calling her back to the covenant. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. So there's all this stuff that he's taking away, but then there's also this loving language. And I think that confuses people. <laughs> so what, what, does that, what does that mean? How is that good? Um, how, is, how does that represent um, Christ and mm-hmm. us and how does that work because it seems like a different it's a very different style of uh writing in the bible as compared to the new testament oh man you kind of stepped in it right there at the very yeah. end uh, when you said as compared to the new testament i'm not sure it's much different than the new testament well it's okay it's not i agree i think people think that it people is. people read the new testament yes. very poorly <laughs> and then they think that the Old Testament and the New Testament are different and mm-hmm. that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different and it's mm-hmm. it's just absolutely false. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no one whose love, there's no character in the Bible whose love is more inflexible than the love of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jesus' love is the most inflexible love of any character of the Bible. Well, not more. It's, it's equally inflexible mm-hmm. as a character of God. And a number of Jewish writers have, have also argued as well that... Um, the most tragic figure in the Bible is God hmm. Hmm. because he is the one most harmed and most attacked and most misused and most hated and most disliked and most complained against who is the only truly good heroic character of the story. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet he doesn't get his lover and yet he's always turned away from and yet his work is never appreciated. He's never treated as the hero. Um, and so what, what the problem is, is that the Bible is read without gravity, mm-hmm. right? It's like that story of the late princess who mm-hmm. is, um, you know, she like, she'll float up in the air if you don't, if she's not in the water, mm-hmm. she has no weight. And so she's, and so like when this prince comes to love her, she's just like, she's like, oh, let's just swim in the river. Mm-hmm. Let's have, and she just swims around <laughs> and she's mm-hmm. having a great time, but she can never commit to anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, and she can never feel anything very deeply. All she can feel is like the frothy enjoyment of like playing around. Mm-hmm. And it isn't until he dies in front of her to save her water that she's like, oh my gosh. And she finds her gravity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And similarly, we, we read the Bible that way. We read the Bible with no gravity. So mm-hmm. part of the mm-hmm. issue uh, in relationship to God is, is, this is both true in Ezekiel and in Hosea, is that God essentially is argu- implicitly arguing two things. One, well, three, you could argue three things, but we can narrow them down. One, I created you. And that creates a relationship of honor and loyalty that is inescapable. Mm-hmm. See, part of the issue is because of modern American um, liberalized or libertine post-disestablishment culture, we have this idea of necessary consent. 
that mm-hmm. everything in our lives we have the right to consent to or not to consent mm-hmm. to. But the problem is, is like voluntarily, voluntarily, yeah. right? At every moment. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. Right. It's not true in America. Like the government is going to make us do a bunch of stuff. And if we're like, well, how can you make me do this? They're like, mm-hmm. they'll be like, well, cause you live in this country and this is a country. That's what mm-hmm. countries do. Like governments tell people to do stuff and you can say the law is unjust or something like that. But the, but you can't really argue, well, I didn't consent to this. Mm-hmm. Well, no, but you were born into an implicit relationship of right. honor, yeah. loyalty, and structure. You can't just opt out of it. Mm-hmm. Which leads to the second thing, which is in his creation of us, he has both saved us and generously given to us. Mm-hmm. So similarly, like if you're an American, you're like, well, I didn't consent to this American thing. Yeah, but you were also saved from dying from your birth mm-hmm. by the <laughs> groups that you were born into, starting with your family and then growing to your nations, right? Mm-hmm. And then you are also saved from bad things, right? You're saved from bad things and you were given good things. And so both in Hosea and Ezekiel, God makes a big deal of saying, I gave you everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in both cases, he says, and you claimed that the things I gave you were either gifts from your lovers Mm -hmm. or payments from your lovers. Mm -hmm. Not for me. Yeah. And so, one of the, I think one of the reasons why God attacks those things is because he has to attack those things to attack the delusion. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's two things. See, part of the issue is people have to come to grips with what God is willing to do and what God is not willing to do and the redemption of, of image-bearing people. Mm-hmm. And there's two things that appears that God is not willing to do. And I know this doesn't sound very Calvinist, not that we are officially that, but a, a lot of the time we sound that way. He doesn't appear to be willing to magically mystically and internally in most cases take away our delusions mm-hmm. or force our will hmm. now obviously whether or not we believe in like f- this or that kind of free will or whatever mm-hmm. is a very complicated thing because i don't believe in absolute free will but i believe in substantial free will that produces because the bible assumes everywhere we're responsible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there's a certain amount of freedom that produces responsibility that we have right so what God is constantly trying to do is to, through persuasion, mm-hmm. um, you, you could even argue coercive persuasion in certain cases, help us to see that our delusions are delusions mm-hmm. and that our choices are wrong. And he doesn't seem to do that by a mere internal overpowering. The Bible talks about us receiving conviction, yeah. which is an internal realization. Mm-hmm. Like that we on the deepest level of knowledge we know our conscience is actually witnessing to us like a witness Mm -hmm. in the court would say this is wrong and that's coming from the inside of us but that doesn't actually overpower our will Mm -hmm. our Mm -hmm. will still has to agree with it and say that's true Mm -hmm. that's right I'm wrong or that's true that's right I have been looking at this all wrong Mm -hmm. and so God then in this situation intentionally goes in and frustrates the whoredom of his lover Mm -hmm. by creating difficulty in the relationship with mm-hmm. with these people she wants to go after making it more difficult for her to go after mm-hmm. them building more costs into it like you have to go mm-hmm. through thorn bushes to get there right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then in addition to that all the things that she says these these are mine my lovers mm-hmm. paid me for these because of yeah. my great love or these were gifts from my other lovers not from you mm-hmm. and he's like fine yeah then i'll destroy them and we need to see ourselves as that woman absolutely yeah yeah, like I said in the sermon, mm-hmm. God's jealousy makes no 
good sense to us is not good news to us mm-hmm. yeah. until we fully embrace our whoredom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the reasons why people are so offended at God's jealousy. Because we we because when right. you get if I get jealous at my wife, I'm saying to my wife, you have not been sufficiently faithful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like my wife has said that to me. I mean, in my teenage years, I was a serial dater. And so I tend to be kind of a flirt. And there are situations where I give attention to women that is just that is just more engaging than it really ought to be. Hmm. And my wife will see that and she'll just be like, you're enjoying something more than just the friendship you have with that woman in that Mm. moment. And it, and I feel hurt by it. Mm. And like, that hurts my feelings. Like I get upset by that because I didn't ask her out or anything or touch her or Mm. even like really flirt with her. But like, she could tell that there was a certain kind of enjoyment that I was taking that relationship that Mm -hmm. was like, that hurt her feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's an indictment on me. And so like, I'm, I'm hurt by that. And so I'm like, dang it. I like, I've been your husband for 20 years. I've never touched another woman. I've never like, I have done all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah, except that moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or yeah. the moments where you do that. Yeah. <laughs> and like, until I can say, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're right. I, I'm taking pleasure. I have it under control. I'm a pastor. Mm-hmm. I'm a good Christian. I have it under control, but I'm still, drawing enjoyment from the connection of me pouring out a certain kind of thing from my masculinity Mm -hmm. and trying to get to her to affirm it in a certain way from her femininity, Mm -hmm. which I get something from that is obvious to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is worthy of your jealousy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I realized that my whoredom exists at least on that level, Mm -hmm. then when she is jealous toward me, I, I can affirm it as right. I can see it as a protective action mm-hmm. of the loyalty and honor we share with each other. And I can see it as an act of love. Right. But if I won't accept that I did that, right. Then mm-hmm. it drives a wedge between us and she has to either amp it up or let it go, but she can't not feel it. And mm-hmm. it, it produces destruction. And so I think when we go, when we recognize spirit, spiritually, I am a whole, I am literally a whore. I mean, like with mm-hmm. my wife, I've been pretty faithful as things go. But like with, with, um, with God spiritually, I mean, well, whoredom, that, yeah. There is a fire a, currently There's a fire alarm going. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, well, finish your statement and then we'll just. Yeah. Speaking leave. about running around, but, but yeah, like <laughs> my, my whoredom is, should be incredibly obvious. The more I get to know God, the more I get to know myself. Yeah. And so therefore the idea that God is jealous for me. And that jealousy could destroy me if I continue in my hoarder, but it also mm-hmm. could bring me to him and make a real love out of me, an honest woman, as they used to say. Mm-hmm. That is my salvation. Yeah. Literally yeah. is my right. salvation. And that's, I should long for that and love it about God. Okay, let's stop there. All right, bye. <laughs> anyway, so we're we're back from the fire drill. Yes. <laughs> we're, all, we're all okay. It was just a drill. So we, we ended, so we ended with the idea that, that un- accepting our own whoredom, that we are unfaithful lovers. And that we go out and we commit spiritual adultery, so to speak. We, we commit, mm-hmm. we go and we engage in idolatry and that idolatry can be, you know, paganism, but it, mm-hmm. it normally is just giving our devotion to something other than God, making mm-hmm. some good thing God made a God as the thing we seek for our salvation, mm-hmm. our self salvation. And then we don't, we, we don't treat God as God. Mm-hmm. And that that spiritual adultery is rampant in our human experiences. Mm-hmm. And it's only the jealousy of God that can produce our salvation, that can bring us to himself and make us faithful lovers, which is our goal and end and purpose. Mm-hmm. 
And so because of that, the jealousy of God should be seen in all its brutality as one of his perfections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that in the book of Exodus, he would say, call call himself by that name. In, In Exodus 34, he says... The Lord, whose name is jealous, mm-hmm. is a yeah. jealous God. That God says that His jealousy is so fundamental mm-hmm. to His being, His name is jealous. Mm-hmm. The only other, th- one of the only other things, I think it might be the only other thing in the Bible where God says, "This is His name," mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is the verb to be that He is. I am, I, mm-hmm. I am that I am. Like He names Himself as the existing one, the being one, mm-hmm. the one who is. The only other instance of Him saying, "This is My name." Mm-hmm is when he says he's a je- he's jealous. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that's an important statement for modern people because we have to grapple with that. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the benefits of it is if you if you start with the idea that God is jealous and that's good and you and you don't say oh that's ter- that's stupid. Mm-hmm. You actually grapple with like why would that be? Mm-hmm. It will work you back to your humanity. Yeah. It will take you back to these fun well what is jealousy? Right. And what's it built on? Mm-hmm. How, I mean, that's what I did when I was preparing the sermon. I was right. like, okay, wait, let's start with God's jealousy. Now let's work back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the more I worked back, the more I was like, oh, this is true about me. And this is, this is true about relationships. And therefore, this is a realization I have to make. And this is the, it all seems so clear once I, instead of blew off God's jealousy, I grappled with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's fundamental to Christian discipleship is God gives us all these truths about himself that are incredibly difficult for us to accept. Mm-hmm. And you either blow them off. Yeah. Or you grapple with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's when you grapple with them that you grow incredibly. And right. it's always humiliating. It's always painful. It's right. always difficult. Right. Like, yeah. Will you be willing to let the text read against you as yeah. opposed to you just yeah. reading it for however you want to read it? Right. Yeah. Or ignore the things that you, your ideology wants to gloss over. Right. Yeah. Or read the Bible through, through the lens of your cultural assumption mm-hmm. or your own mm-hmm. assumption right. versus the other way around. Yeah, and speaking yeah. of reading your ideology to it in the cultural assumptions, mm-hmm. um, Numbers 5 is a great example of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so Numbers 5, uh, Nick mentioned in the sermon, is a passage about, uh, which a lot of, there's there's uh, textual scholars who say that it's a, a witch trial, essentially. Mm-hmm. But it's um, a, a test that is actually very gracious um, from God. Uh, for a woman who is accused of jealousy and there's no proof that she has actually or accused of adultery by a jealous husband by her own husband by her own husband and there's actually no proof um from the husband that it actually happened and so nick do you want to talk more about the only proof in that context would have been the couple to be caught in yes Mm -hmm. so to speak and And then then it would be very clear (laughs) right and and then the penalty for that is stoning of both people Mm -hmm. right yeah, so it's not not so much, I don't think, serious scholars, but you get a lot of this in feminist readings sort mm. of scholarship okay. yeah. that this is basically like a witch trial, that women have, that there's always been this like um, patriarchy and the patriarchy has always been terrible to women mm-hmm. in almost every possible way. And that... Um, and then they work from from witch trials backwards. Mm-hmm. And so they go, you know, women had to go through these, basically when they were suspected of things, they had to go through these trials. And the trials mm-hmm. were usually in and of themselves fundamentally destructive. So like mm-hmm. you'd have women where like they would drown, they put a woman in the water and they'd say well, like, if, well, if you're a witch, you know, you won't drown, you, you know, you won't yeah, drown. You'll float. And they'll have to yeah. kill you. Yeah. And But if you're just a normal woman, you'll die. You See Monty Python for No. Now, just to be clear, um, though I studied under a women's studies professor in undergrad, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if any of the, the truth of most mm. of that. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that um, 
the church's the church's legacy in witch trials in the history of Europe is way less. It didn't institute them. Witch trials already existed before the church ever got there. Mm. It decreased them massively. It officially said there was nothing to it that witches actually couldn't destroy anyone. Mm-hmm. And like witch trials went down and down and down and down and down over the over the reign of the Spanish Inquisition. Okay, so there's a lot of nonsense just in that. Yeah. Okay. Um, however, in this case, there is there is no evidence in the reading of the text that th- that this is a trial that would hurt a woman in any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had Jill, cause when I read it though, so, so I want to read it as suspect as possible. I mean, I did, mm-hmm. I did study under with some women studies professors. Right? So, <laughs> so the, the question then is, okay, so what the woman is required to do, the, the husband has mm-hmm. to bring um, an offering at his own expense. So, he, so it's, he doesn't do it lightly. He has to bring it to the priest. Mm-hmm. So he has to be open about his suspicion, at least with the priest. Mm-hmm. And then the woman has the curse and blessing spoken over. If she's done this, that God would curse her. If she has not done this, that she would be vindicated, right? And then she's to drink a cup of holy water, which would be the purest water they could get their hands on, mm-hmm. right? So there's no impurity in the water. Um, and then they would take a little bit of dust off of the floor, which is symbolic, mm-hmm. right? And then he was to rinse with water the curses written on the vellum, well, not the vellum, it would have been papyri, probably, um, and rinse it into the, some of it into the water, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the question then is, okay, what a modern reader would, the conclusion we would jump to is the ink is the poison. Yeah, because dust, mm-hmm. I mean, you probably eat some dust. Yeah, and you're fine. eats dirt, right? right? Yeah. And that's what, that was, that's what always made me uncomfortable was like, okay, surely there's, right? Listen, man, you can read all, there's so many commentaries, commentaries yeah. don't talk about this at all. I was like, Jill, find it somewhere. <laughs> and so Jill had to actually do research outside of the commentaries yeah. on like what was in. What ink was made of. What then. was in ink yeah. mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. those days. And what she found was is that later on, when you got closer to the New Testament period, there were things be- being added to ink to make it more durable, mm-hmm. probably like mm-hmm. heavier metals and yeah, things like, like that. Yeah, like iron or copper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which wouldn't necessarily harm someone even with those. Right. I mean, it's right. Not, that's not like, you know, uranium or something. Right. right? They did say lead. Maybe, yeah. possibly. Right. That yeah. Was, it would be harmful. So with the introduction but. of lead, that would be real. But yeah. lead is a buildup poison. Too. Right, yeah. Even yeah. even lead in yeah. the tiny amounts that would be found right. in a little bit of ink right, yeah. by right. itself would not Right, so in the damage. ancient world, yeah. there was some carbon, water, a certain kind of gum. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else you remember? Gall. Uh, so like oak gall, which mm-hmm. is like a, the thing that can grow on a, that like lump that can grow on an oak tree, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but uh, ultimately nothing harmful. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the trial, what happens is the woman um, drinks this drink that probably doesn't taste good. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no reason to believe it tastes good. It's called bitter, the bitter water. Right. It's called yeah. the bitter water. So it doesn't taste good. Mm-hmm. Or water but bitterness. it's not. Um, but there's no reason to believe evidentially that there's anything poisonous in it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so a number of the commentators observe that this is the only situation of divine trial or punishment that requires a miracle from God himself to execute judgment. Hmm. And, but it's also the only, the only trial that comes from suspicion and no evidence. Right. Right. And so what actually is happening in this, and so what other people, sometimes people recognize, say is they're like, well, why should a woman have to go through that? Why should any woman have to prove to anybody that she didn't do anything? And listen, that's true. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, context is important. And in every culture of the ancient world, men had the right to do what they wanted in their own households. Mm-hmm. 
and including with their children and especially their babies exposed to death if they didn't want to feed them and with their wives. In most of the ancient Near East cultures, if a husband suspected his wife of, of uh, adultery and he, and he did something about it, usually virtually nothing was done. Mm-hmm. And in some, many of the cultures, they were actually legally protected because mm-hmm. they could do what they want. Mm-hmm. And so what this did was it went into that culture that says if a man is jealous of his wife, he could do what he wants with her. Right. Yeah. And it took away that right. And in fact, the Torah does that in an, a couple of different places that are were actually unknown up until that point. The um, stoning of children, like some people read that passage that like if your kid is terrible for long enough, you bring them to the priest and there is a community decision about how bad your kid is, that they really mm-hmm. are that terrible. And then the whole community stones the child. And people are like, they stoned kids? And the, and the answer is, well, before that, a father could decide to kill his kid whenever he darn well pleased. Mm-hmm. He could just snap his neck at dinner if he was mad enough. And that was considered fully legal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what this did was it took the decision away from the potter familias, the yeah. male head of the household, yeah. and it put it in the context of the community. So listen, if you had a person that was so much of a reprobate that he was going to destroy the whole community, the whole community could decide together, yeah, you can't unleash this person on us. Mm-hmm. And they could choose to stone him. But that that's a rarer situation than a really angry father. Right. <laughs> Extremely like, rare. I'm going to kill right. myself. Yeah. I'm so mad. Dennis Prager in his commentary, The Logical Bible, points out that there is no record anywhere in the history of Judaism of that command ever being done. Yeah. Hmm. So, it, I mean, yeah, that, I would think it would. that rare. Yeah. It would. Yeah. Right. I would think it wouldn't happen. So essentially what it, that does is God legislates away the existence of paterfamilias in relationship to the killing of children. Mm-hmm. Like grown children, in this one in in Numbers five, he le- he legislates away the the right of a husband to hurt his wife on the basis of jealousy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only way he can stone his wife on the basis of adultery is if they stone a man too, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's gender equal at least, right? You might think that's too much punishment, <laughs> but it's gender equal at least. Yeah. And then the third is that husbands have the right to expose children, babies. So when their their wives naturally out of their fertility bore children that historically women did not want to get rid of. When, historically, when women carry children and they have them, they want their children to live, especially because infant mortality is like 50%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're a woman and you have eight kids, like if four of them survive, you're doing great, mm-hmm. right? And so women, they didn't want to expose their children. They'd rather not get pregnant, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, but men didn't want to feed the children. Oftentimes, or they didn't want more girls. They did, if they could only, if they were going to raise four children, mm-hmm. they didn't want two or three of them to be girls, mm-hmm. and so they would often expose girl children more than others, right? And there's there's evidence of this from the ancient world. There's a, mm-hmm. a famous letter written by a husband who was traveling to his wife, saying, you know, if it's a boy, name him after me, mm-hmm. and if it's a girl, give her to the priests, mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm. meant expose her, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, one of the commands God gives over and over again is. Do not sacrifice your children. Mm-hmm. You do not expose your children. You do not. So the three main ways men misused their patriarchal authority and mm-hmm. their responsibility mm-hmm. over their households mm-hmm. were taken away in the Torah. And yet none of their responsibilities were taken away. They were still supposed to be husbands and fathers and workers mm-hmm. and fighters and warriors and leaders. But the, um, the benefits of all that responsibility did not include treating babies however you wanted, mm-hmm. treating your grown children who might grow up to be something of a rival to you, if mm-hmm. a male especially, however you wanted, or to treat your wife or women however you wanted. Mm-hmm. And so there were actually very strict rape laws in mm-hmm. the Torah that, mm-hmm. that are much stricter than most other cultures too. And so when you look at that kind of stuff, you can see that God, A, is just more just. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
but his commands are defined concessions that are realistic. He doesn't give some like anarchic feminist, like West coast reader theory view on how women should be treated. Like his commands are like firmly rooted within the situation that they were in making it as fundamentally just as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but it also shows his jealousy for justice and goodness and rightness mm -hmm. amongst people. And he demonstrates that he does not believe anybody has the right to execute their jealousy other than him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That he ex executes the result of his own jealousy. And he also is the one you have to trust mm -hmm. with the, with the execution of your own jealousy. If you believe the execution of your jealousy is wrath, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're allowed to execute your jealousy in any positive way, in any loving mm -hmm. way. Mm hmm. The only way you can't execute your jealousy is in wrath. Wrath is reserved for God, Romans 12. Mm -hmm. right? In yeah. fact, he says, the matter you are, the better you ought to be to somebody. Because mm -hmm. if, you're, if you give grace to them and you're good to them and they spurn it more, it increases the mm -hmm. wrath mm -hmm. that God has for them when he ultimately executes it on that day. Mm -hmm. Or the implicit, the implicit argument, obviously this is the book of Romans, right? So the implicit argument is, or they'll come toward you and come to Jesus and be saved and all of the wrath they deserve will be punished on the cross of right. Christ and not on them just right. like you. And you'll both be saved by grace and mercy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A big takeaway that I'm, I'm um, taking from this conversation is read the Bible and assume that God is right and you are wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, and learn about how God has rightly ordered everything um, for your good, um, including his jealousy, but everything else too. But yeah. to go in not with your cultural assumption or your emotional response first, but as who God said he is, says he is as first yeah. as you read and learn about who he is. Yeah, I think one of the most terrible and great ironies of academic life is that people forget how blind reading critically makes you hmm. people think when you read something quote critically, it really opens your mind to so much, but it really op only opens your mind to one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And so if you read something as a feminist reader, mm -hmm. you will see things you've never seen before. And it's mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. And if that's good to do sometimes, but if you, if that's your shtick, mm -hmm. then, and you're a woman and you're reading the Bible, the last thing you're going to accept is your whoredom spiritually. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm because you're reading the Bible in a certain way and the Bible was not, was actually not meant to be read that way. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. And so it's good to read critically in the sense that you kind of like try to try different perspectives on the Bible and see if it reveals new insights. Mm -hmm. But ultimately the Bible is exists to be critical of you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you read the, whenever you read the Bible critically, what you're really doing is reading it blindly. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Because what you really should be, what, the, what you're doing really is is not a exercise of criticism of the Bible. Reading the Bible is supposed to be an exercise of self-criticism. Right. That's what <laughs> right. it is. Right. Yeah. And so the minute you say, I'm going to read the Bible critically, though academically you might have to do that for a paper somewhere, mm -hmm. spiritually, you don't read the Bible uncritically because you just believe in faith and you check your brain at the door and you don't want to be intelligent yeah not mm -hmm. using critical thinking you should mm -hmm. use right. critical thinking yeah right. right but you should use that critical thinking to allow the bible to criticize you right mm -hmm. right because the assumption is is that you come as the sinner to yeah. god's revealed text and yeah. so um once you understand that kind of 
perspectively, it, it, it makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the more you'll look at the Bible to take out of it what's there, and the less you'll put on what you want it to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the more and the more terrifying, embarrassing, and painful your reading will be. Mm-hmm. But you will feel like something of gravity has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after a while, you'll it'll be like working out. You'll love that feeling. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and the more you read, too, you'll you'll understand the story of God and how mm-hmm. His love it has right. been consistent over time, but also a story over time, and you'll understand Him better and yourself better. Right. And to the point of this series, yeah, you'll begin to see the ways God God's love is nuanced far beyond what yeah. you could possibly imagine mm-hmm. that yeah. you could look at that you could look at a text like the one on the jealousy of God and have an immediate gut reaction that says ah oh, this isn't right mm-hmm. and then by studying it and looking at mm-hmm. how how God is using this and how he's bringing his people back to what they're meant to be through this way of showing love you can see how even that thing that initially you would have this kind of reaction to would be an expansion of your sight of what the love of God is yeah. and what the, what the love of God can accomplish. Yeah. And, and the legitimacy of God's expressed feelings and beliefs about himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I, I love the love of God 10 times more mm-hmm. having realized that it's not unconditional, but it is mm-hmm. unfailing mm-hmm. and that it's jealous. Mm-hmm. Then when I had this kind of like pixie notion of like, Jesus is the one who just accepts everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. You know, and that just doesn't stand up to the horrors of life. Right. Yeah. And right. you, you'll lose your faith and you'll mm-hmm. never grow. It's just, yeah. It's so, yeah, the Bible, God, the Bible is challenging because God is challenging mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because we are challenging mm-hmm. both in our complexity and in our sinfulness. And the more you dig in, the more your conceptualizations will fail. That's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why people don't want to read the Bible. Hmm. They have conceptualizations about yeah. the world and about God, and about religion. Right. <laughs> and they don't want to have to rebuild them. Yeah. You don't mm-hmm. want every, your structures to be shredded. Yeah. It takes right. a lot of time. <laughs> right. And the Bible <laughs> does very consistently do yeah. that. Yeah. Even your good Christian ones. Mm-hmm. It just, it's like, yeah, but you're using it in all the wrong ways. Like, mm-hmm. like Jesus says about the people and their, their pledges of faith to the, the temple. They're like, you know, if you swear by the temple, it's like a big deal. And like, uh, generally speaking, swearing on God's name, that makes sense. That, that would be better than just saying, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly, I think religiously in a certain sense, it's legitimate. And Jesus is like, yeah, except but that you like use it to play games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, Oh crap. And the Bible's full of those <laughs> kinds of experiences. And you're like, I have this theologically right. And then God's like, yeah, except it's a mechanism for you to engage in idolatry mm-hmm. and for you not to grapple with me. You use your theology so you don't have to actually pray mm-hmm. and you and pray to me. Mm-hmm. Because it's terrifying to be alone with me. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. It's hard to become human, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even when you already are one. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so the, God's invitation to grapple with his, the more difficult truths about him create bigger mm-hmm. vistas of growth than grappling with truths that are not difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As though there are any such things, but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and doing that work, it it's hard, but it builds joy because you become more like Christ, and that is a joyful, beautiful, mm-hmm. good thing. So, yeah, yeah. yeah what did Kierkegaard say that we all fear a guilty past, mm-hmm. a boring present, and an anxious future, mm-hmm. and only by grappling deeply can you really deal with your own guilt. Yeah, and how that really is put away in Christ. Mm-hmm. 
it's the only way for our walk with God and our understanding of God and our understanding of ourselves to not be boring. Mm-hmm. I find secularism and sort of like the the unthoughtfulness of modern culture to be mm-hmm. incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. The stories are boring. Self-understanding is boring. The theologies are boring. The, the activities are boring. boring. The activities are boring. <laughs> the magic rectangle. Yeah, it's just boring. Yeah. And then we're anxious about the future. We just don't know what's... And part of the reason we're anxious about the future is we don't know what our purpose is. Yeah. We don't know the future. We're going to hew out from the rock of potentiality. And all three of those are grappled with in coming to God this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you could grapple with the jealousy of God, it will... It will deal with your past guilt. Mm-hmm. It will deal with your boring present mm-hmm. and it will show you what you're meant to be in your, yeah. in your otherwise anxious future. Mm-hmm. And it will, it will, it will set you into being a human being mm-hmm. in a way that our more shallow views could never do. Yeah. And, and therefore it will produce joy and it will produce yeah. peace and you will actually know how to have relationships. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't think you can really, really have yeah. deep, strong honor and loyalty filled relationships until you understand the jealousy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you best come to understand jealousy by means of the jealousy of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Well, we've got to wrap up. Good stopping point, right? Yeah. Here. Good mm-hmm. stopping point. Nice. Nice finish. Uh, thanks for listening. And you can find the sermons for this series at highpointchurch.org slash sermons. So if you want some more context and to dive into this more, you can look there. And or if you want to have it in your podcasts with you, yeah. Um, High Point Church Madison is what you should search on. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.